You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Captain, my captain. Mm, I hit the record button bracket, so now they, they all know how you really feel about me. I think it only got captain. I don't <laughs> think it got the full thing. I'll start over if you want. No, we can just go it. We can go go it right now. I, I will say now that I'm like talking to you, you know, like with your new shoe backdrop, I have like podcast room envy. Is that a thing? It is now. Yeah, I, I have that and I'm moving. I'm closing on my new house in less than two weeks. And so I'm trying to figure out how to one up you in this new space because I'm not going to remodel my current space because I'm leaving. So I got to find a way, Bracken, to, to make you have podcast room envy. I think the my the, I had two options I was going to do. The first was the shoe wall. The second, I wanted to have a wall-sized fish tank behind me and then have Lisa always in a mermaid suit whenever I was podcasting and have her just swimming back and forth as my wall behind me. That seems totally feasible. So if you wanted to pull that off with Jess, that probably would one on me. <laughs> a, a live mermaid swimming behind you on a on a fish tank wall. If she wasn't at work when we record these things, we could make it happen. But I'll find a way. First of all, I want to start off with saying a big thank you. Last week, I asked for you to go leave ratings and reviews to help us get to 400. We were at like 344. We're recording this on Monday morning, so a few more might come through. But you guys stepped up to the plate. And you made my damn week. We are at 404. We breached 400 yesterday, Bracken. So to those of you who took either the two seconds or the two minutes to write something or rate, thank you very much. Super pumped up. I'm glad you guys came through. That made that that made my day seeing that when I when I pulled that up this morning. It's all we wanted for Christmas, Kirk. Was it Christmas we wanted that for? Birthday. Yeah. Birthday I did see week. a review. I did see a review from Alex Walker saying, please don't talk about birthdays ever again. <laughs> and why was that? I think because we just overdid it last week. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was curious why she said that, if it was because it made her feel old or if it was because it we required people to, to do big, epic things on birthdays. Maybe we were just annoying about it. Maybe she hates birthdays. Maybe she's, yeah, a little grumpy with the birthdays. But anyways, thank you guys. That was awesome. You're cool. Appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate it. And the thing that the hit home for me was how many people tagged us in big epic runs that they did. Yeah, people got after it, didn't they? Yeah, because on our Training Peaks group, we posted that Saturday is do a big epic run day. And then we talked about it on here and people responded. A lot of first time ultra runners, a lot, most of them were solo, a lot of big solo trail adventures. I was impressed. Yeah, I got a number of messages, I'm going to say a half a dozen, uh, saying that, you know what, my birthday's coming up in the next month and screw it, I'm going X amount of miles. Can you work that into my plan or do you think that's smart? I said, well, it's not smart, but we're going to do it anyways, <laughs> because that's why we do these things. What's the biggest run you got messaged about? Mm, somebody mentioned something about 50 miles or something. 50 for 50. 
Yeah, 50 for their 50th. Yeah, I think it was. So you that's saw? Big. Yeah, that's big. That's big. I ran <laughs> 31 this weekend, and that was enough for me. We did it. We did our big runs. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk about yours first? Well, I, mine was scheduled for Thursday, and I messaged you that night and just said, or on Monday night and said, hey, I'm just going to do this tomorrow. I'm just going to get you, this done. You made a strategic error with that, by the way. In I hindsight. did. You did. You weren't recovered fully from our weekend together. There's no way. No, it wasn't enough time. I don't know if I would have been by Thursday, but I would have been two more days recovered. I faded really badly, like I knew I was going to, but I stayed on it. And I went 243, I think, or 245. And you wanted to be faster than the first time you did it when you were out of shape, in quotes? Yeah, I said 309. It was actually 259. Hmm. That that my worst effort there was 259 and I went uh, mid 240s. So I'm happy with that. But the the last three miles was as bad as the last three miles of uh, my my last ultra that I completed. It was Why? terrible. I just ran out of all power. I was fighting, fighting to be under nine minute pace. And I lost that fight on the last two miles. <laughs> I went like 915 and 934 on the last two miles. And it was it was an all-out effort. There was just no juice left. Flat. The last two miles are the fastest miles on the whole thing. When I'm doing well, I'm, I'm running 620, 612 on those last two miles. I think on my PR day, I did. So it's runnable. You can roll low sixes on that at the end of 20 miles. Uh, I was I was not breaking nine. Well, and, and that just is sort of a, a testament to resistance to impact more than anything. And if you're not able to run much or have at least enough big days banked in training, when it hits, you just can't, you can't win when you actually like physically break down, it, it's over. You can't, you can't will yourself past that at a certain point, which I felt this weekend as well. So that now you got a, you got a real time snapshot of where you're at. I got to mile 16 and I didn't want to be out there anymore. Oh, it's not bad. You only had to run like four or five miles. Miserable. I knew it was going to be bad when at six, I started feeling some hamstring signs of like real fatigue. And I looked down and I had 15 more miles to go. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is going to get long. But it wasn't until 16 or 17 that I hit the part of, I no longer want to be out here, which is that part we said we need to get to on a change yourself type day. So I, I, I finished. I'm happy with it. And it's a great baseline. What's the point of doing it? What's the point of doing it if you're not miserable at some point? Because otherwise you don't, you don't learn anything and you don't, you're not forced to get like introspective and then it's not serving the purpose you want it to. So that's good. Worst part about the whole thing, other than the last two miles, Kirk, is my watch beeped mile one and about a 10th of a mile later, my music cut out. It crackled a few times and then it cut out and I looked down in my little music device had bounced off of my belt. I have a, it's called Mighty Audio. It's the size and shape of the old mini iPod shuffle where it's like one inch by one inch. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, you can sync Spotify playlists onto it. So all my Spotify playlists you have on there and then you can just carry that and you're fine. You don't need a phone or anything for music. It's super small. It's practically waterproof. So I just, on hot days, I just clip that on my waistband and then I run and I got music. And one mile in, it bounced off of my belt which I've never had happen before. And so I had a decision to make. <laughs> I have 20 miles to go. Do I want to run 20 miles with no music and then try to find this thing afterwards? But that means I have to come out another mile, find it and go back. So I stopped, I turned around. And you found it? I never found it. Oh, shit. 
So I lost my music player and then I went 20 miles <laughs> with no music. <laughs> Brutal. Which is fine. What was on that playlist? I was starting with uh, an Eminem playlist. And once I got to halfway, I was switching to, to Rick Ross all the way in. Yeah, you're a Rick Ross guy. I would have started slow. I would have like programmed it. So like I would, Enya or some, some shit in the beginning. Historically, I do. Yeah. I make it halfway on something that's smooth and mellow, yep. but I wanted to be in go mode from the beginning. Mm. Well, all you got was the sound of the wind blowing through your hair, Bracken. So my second mile was 1030. My first was 710. And my second one was 1030 because I was I was looking for my MP3 player. <laughs> Re- respect for keeping the watch running though. Respect. So it is what it is. No. So I learned two lessons. First is I can't take chances with that. I hooked it to a new part of my belt. Shouldn't have done that. But the second is uh, it reinforced something that I said about ultras where you choose the shoe that will support you in your final mile, not the shoe that you feel fast in the start. And I was torn on what shoes to go with, Kirk. Okay. Well, aren't you doing a mix of cement running and trail running? And you have a, a tough decision to actually make. Yeah. And I went with the Evo Speed Goats, which is just a not, it's not enough shoe for me. For that amount of time right now hmm. when my form breaks apart it's not enough shoe so what should you have gone with i would have gone with uh the mafate uh, because my it's not that it's not enough shoe it's that it's too flexible of a shoe it's their most flexible trail shoe and for me when my form breaks down all that extra flexibility in my in the shoe just leads to my legs having issues because they're working a little harder to grip in the shoe to like keep your foot taut and push off so Right around mile 17, I thought, yeah, this, I wouldn't be feeling some of this if I'd taken a different shoe. It was a good reminder. Start with the heavier shoe that's going to support me later on. Yeah. All right. Well, you got it done. You do what you said you're going to do. That was the point. Yeah, I'm super happy with it. But you, you rolled a little bit bigger than I did. Tell the people about it. Yeah. Did my first ultra. And uh, yeah, if you listen to this, you already know, but you probably saw a post about it. But uh, I won my first 50K and it felt great. Until it didn't, but it felt great for the most part. Um, I, I know that it's a theme with me, this whole, like, you know, we've talked it to death, this, like, low mileage sort of still performing training plan. And to run, you know, 18 total miles the week prior, 18 total, and then to go race a 31-mile race and have my body hold up for 26, I would say, of the 31 miles, I, how do I complain about that? I didn't know what I was going to necessarily get. And I've said it before, but more than anything, it just tells me I'm not full of shit, right? And that I'm, I'm on to something. And so to have it come through on race day was really satisfying, man. Um, course was like, I was sitting here talking like, I'm going to go try to break the course record. Do, do, do. Like, I'm going to go do that. You get on that trail. For anybody listening, maybe there's just a handful of you who've been on the Superior Hiking Trail on the north shore of Minnesota, where, you know, an hour from the Canadian border. It is nasty and gnarly and if a tree falls over the trail we'll figure it out you're just gonna have to crawl over that in the middle and there's boulders the size of you and there's tree ruts every three feet you're almost playing hopscotch the entire 31 miles with tree ruts sticking inches above the surface that you have to choose to you know your foot placement around so very impressive i realized the record of 342 is a very hard record like that is a more of an amazing feat than i realized um but we uh we got three days two days of rain beforehand and it's a lot of steep, steep stuff. And the way it really affected the course conditions were on the descents. I can descend and I could not 
descend because I'd fly off the trail and no shoe's going to grip that mud. Right. And so that was, uh, I, I lost a lot of time going downhill and then, you know, running in place up some of the hills with the thick mud and, and slickness, but, um, I'm happy with it. How do I complain about that Bracken? I don't think you can. For reference, I was hitting mid sixties when I did my last, my first trail 50 K. 60, 60 mile, mile weeks. Yeah. And I was, which I was happy with at that time, but I, I made it 28 miles before I crumbled. So I made it two miles longer and I wasn't running as fast as you were. Mm. So, so eight, 18 to 25 miles a week and making it 26 running. I ran 414, you ran 404 and your terrain. 403. 403. 414 and you ran 403. So you beat me by 11 minutes on a course that is not comparable to what I ran. This course was nuts. It really was. I want to do it next year. You should. They have a, so they have a fall. The fall race is their big one. They do a 50K, a 50 miler and a hundred miler. This is the big one in the fall. So the spring is just a 25K and a 50K. And this is a destination race. Like you, you want to experience something like fly out. Like you don't have to deal with altitude, but yet I got almost 5,000 feet of vert in the race. And so it levels the playing field that way. And it's just some beautiful country. We had the fog was rolling in in the morning. And so you could only see like 10, 20 meters in front of your face. And you're running through this beautiful North Minnesota woods country. Like I felt like I was like in some sort of like movie, right? It was, it was unbelievable. So it was good. I won by 23 minutes and I feel happy with that. I kept refreshing. <laughs> I kept refreshing my feet all weekend, waiting for the results to come in. And then by yesterday at noon, I had an idea that I locked it up. So that's the worst part of multi-day time trial races is waiting. Mm-hmm. If you had to do it again, would you do it how you did? Or would you run on the final day? No, I liked Friday. Cause then I got to like relax over the weekend afterwards. Okay. That, that was the main thing. Cause you know, the people who waited for day four were watching your time and trying to pace base that. Right. You can't pace it. Um, this all leads in again, and I'm saying this every intro, this all leads into our topic today too, but, um, you can't gauge an effort like that on a trail like that. And we had talked on the phone, uh, on my way home, you asked me about the race. Um, they were, there were two climbs. They were 500 foot climbs in the last five miles. And that maybe that doesn't sound like much to the mountain folk, but, um, when I hit those 500 foot climbs and part of the sections were that greasy old mossy wood steps where mm-hmm. like they, you, you slip on and there are the tree roots and the rocks in between. And I hit that and I pretty much, I bet you I lost five to 10 minutes in the last five miles. I got reduced to power hiking for the first time. And I know in a previous episode, I yelled at our listeners for power hiking at times and I was reduced to that. So I, I left some time on the table. I went out hot and 155. So that would have been like 350 pace. And I ended up in 403. So I bled pretty hard the last five miles. That'll happen. We're going to talk about all that today, engaging your effort, aren't we? We will. And I want to talk about one more thing before that. Yeah. Or two more things. Both have to do with gear. Yeah. Well, the first is the belt. You went with the same Nathan peak belt that I did. I did. How did that work out for you? Not good this time. Really? I had it too loose. I thought I had cinched it how it needed to be, and I did not. And so it kept rotating to my left hip. So instead of it being on my back, my water bottle, my water bottle sat on my left hip, which ended up actually like causing damage in a sense. I should have just taken the two seconds to stop, cinch it down, but I didn't want to spare however long that would have taken. So I didn't. That's my own fault, though. I've never had an issue with that belt until Saturday. Well, that's why I bring that up. Because mm-hmm. I futzed with mine for 11 miles. How come? I feel like 
maybe you and I both broke it in at the same time. Because we ran with our belts together two weeks earlier and I had no problems. For over two hours, descending down ski hills. It was great. If you can bomb down a ski hill at 30% in a belt, you know it's stable. And we didn't have any issues. And we both had belt issues. I didn't know you did, but we both had belt issues in our race, which had way less downhill bouncing. I don't get it. I think we stretched it out just a little bit because mine, mine would not sit where I wanted it to. And it kept riding up and it kept moving and it was almost chafing my back sit, uh, like my back hip bone on the, on the right. And at one point I got frustrated and I just tightened it while I was running. I just cranked on it and I pushed it down and I almost never cranked down my belts because I don't want stomach distress, Mm -hmm. but it sat right below my hip bone at that point and it didn't move the rest of the time. So the last 10 miles, it just sat perfect. And after three miles of it, I realized I haven't thought about this in three miles. And now I love this belt again. Yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't know if I had that time to spare in this time trial format bracket. so I didn't take this. I did it while running. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, it was night and day. It drove me nuts for 11 miles. And then it just sat there for 10. I should have done that. We're, we're always learning. My, mine was within the first, yeah, hundred steps. I was like, Oh, what's this all about? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't take the time. So that's frustrating. You had one other thing you said two things. Yeah. So, so the second that it reminded me is that what works for someone does not work for everyone else with gear all the time. You see what pack is that? I got to get that. You love that pack. And the answer is always, well, yeah, I wear it because I love it, but that doesn't mean you're going to. And that reminded me with shoes. We ran in the same shoes. On very different terrain, but yes, we did. You made it 31 miles and loved every second of it in those shoes. Yeah. Other than the stuff that that shoe's not supposed to handle, which is mud. I needed needed my VJs on, but I didn't trust the impact over 31 miles. And I didn't never see the trail before the day. So I chose the the, the speed goats, yes. Yeah. But in terms of supporting your legs and ankle support, your speed goats worked for you. Yeah. Where on a tame trail, I constantly felt like I was going to roll my ankle and it wasn't enough shoe for me. It didn't support me <laughs> in the second half. So similar athletes, exact same shoe and totally different experience with it. Mm-hmm. For me, that is a half marathon trail racing shoe for me or mountain. I can get out like Tahoe. I wore it for what? If you're going up or down. Almost four hours. It's tough when we get those questions about gear. Like, what is your favorite X? And yeah. it's like you always want to give them some sort of preface or caveat or disclaimer because it's very true. Same thing doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. I mean, if you look over my shoulder right now, one of the greatest shoes I've ever run in is this second version of the Reebok All Terrain Super, which uh-huh. is one of the most hated shoes in the history of trail running. Yeah. But I, it just worked for me for almost any distance off-road. Just loved it. Other than if I had to touch wet, hard surfaces, the grip was awful. But as a shoe, it just supported my body perfectly. And I couldn't in good conscience recommend it to anyone because everyone blew out the sides of it and they all got nasty blisters and it it didn't work for them. But for me, mm-hmm. I wore it for, I mean, in Hawaii, I ran back-to-back beasts in that shoe, back-to-back days. Um so I like I could do anything in that shoe, but it it's just a great reminder with you and I running with the same belt, the same shoes this weekend and totally different experiences. Yeah. And every time we go out and do something like that, we we learn more. We get more and more dialed in, right? When you put That's ourselves in those situations. I'm sure people who were out there doing big things this weekend also uh, maybe learned a few things about their gear as well. So it's a great reminder to keep experimenting. 
Yeah. Socks are the last thing. I, I swear by Swiftwick. I just absolutely love them. But one issue I have is their, their compression is so strong that I get like this indention in my leg and I start to swell above it. And so what I finally did is I, I bought taller socks than what I want. And then I cut them down to the size I wanted. And it got rid of that tight compression at the top. It almost rolls mm. a little bit at the top. And now I don't get any leg swelling. It's like, that's a weird thing that you wouldn't normally try. But now my perfect sock is my absolute perfect sock. So it just works different for everyone. I still have one of your gross socks that you left in my truck. Do you need, do you need that? I, I'm going to eventually. But that sock was one I just put on to wear into your truck. And then I changed into the other ones. So it, it's very, it's very clean. Dirty pair of underwear when I pick that thing up. You lucky man. I have so much though. Oh, I got it here for you. Yeah. Segway, Kirk. Segway us. Okay, I'll segue. Uh, all this uh, leads us into our topic today in a, in a roundabout way, and that is like managing or gauging your effort in events. Um, again, as you know, Bracken and I talk off mic, I guess we'll say, a good bit. Um, and we had chatted before this, and he was asking me about gauging my effort for my race this weekend and where I left time on the table. And it got me thinking and us thinking like, this is a, a very worthwhile topic to dive into. How do you manage or gauge or strategically choose the effort you're going to put out based on all sorts of race difference distances from a mile to an ultra and like how to go about doing that. And it's a tricky task. And the further you go, it seems to be even a trickier task is what I'm learning, but that's what we're dissecting today. Managing your effort. To, to perform is what the best way possible over the distance that you're about to approach. And once you get to a distance longer than 200 meters, effort management is equally important to every distance longer than 200 meters. That's crazy to hear, but it's true. To a well-trained sprinter, they can sprint for 200 meters. Mm -hmm. But once you get above that, you cannot, you cannot just get away with maximum effort the whole time. 300 meter hurdles, 400 meter dash, everything, 800 meter dash, mile race, 5K, 10K marathon, ultra, they're all equally dependent upon correct effort. Mm -hmm. And that's bizarre that a three, that a, that a one minute race can be just as important for your pacing as a 24 hour race. Yeah, but it's true. It is. And so every single person who listens to this is affected equally by this topic, which isn't always the case. Well, and I think, you know, the more we coach athletes, the more I realize that people in general are very out of touch with managing their effort. And a lot of it comes down to knowing and understanding your body, which not everybody has years and years of getting to know it like we have. But um, it's just something that like th these are like managing your effort is something that you can, no matter your fitness, can strategically do in order to get your best performance uh, no matter where you're at in, in your fitness progression. And so, um, I mean, heck, I, I made some mistakes this weekend, for example, and that's what brings this conversation to light. And I've been doing this for a long time. And if I'm doing it, uh, I feel like everybody's doing it at times. Um, heck, you did it this weekend, I assume, in some capacity. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I just want to start with the basics. Initially, yeah. I want to talk theory, and then we'll talk details. But my theory of pacing is that the shorter the race is, the more important it is to not go out too hard in the first quarter to one third of the race. 
the shorter the race is. The shorter the race is, the harder it is to pace the beginning of the race. Okay. The more you have to be careful of that first quarter to one third. And the longer the race goes, the more important it is to be cognizant of the second quarter to second third of the race. Mm-hmm. Every distance out there, once you're past halfway to two thirds, you have a pretty good idea, barring cramping or injury, of what you can do to empty the tank. Yeah. But it's when you're still feeling good, that's the danger point of, am I going too fast or going too slow? And in a short race, that happens at the very beginning, first quarter to first third. And in a long race, that happens once you're a quarter to a third of the way through, then that that real danger zone starts. That's my personal philosophy on pacing. Well, I lived your philosophy this weekend as far as where my strategic error was. And you asked me, this is the same question you asked me. You said, I said, I think I burnt it a little too hot early and it cost me minutes on the back end. And you said, was it the second quarter that did it for you? And I was like, damn it, Bracken, you're right. Because I was still feeling good. I was sinking my teeth into feeling good, not backing off when feeling good. I was attacking. But then when it amounted, uh, it became too much for me to override in the last quarter, we will call it which is where I bled time. So that theory I experienced uh, very, very, very much so this weekend. Here's why I think it. It's because there's that danger point where you're settled into the race, but you're not far enough in to get a true read on what your mounting fatigue levels are. 100% true. So on a 400, an 800, a mile, a two mile, that first quarter always feels pretty acceptable. By the time you get to the second quarter of that race, it's already hurting. So really once you're to, if you're doing a mile, for example, by the time you get to your second of your four laps, you're already locked into how your your race is going to go. Yep. You can either hold on, you can pick it up or you can die, but you already know what your forecast is. It's just the first lap that you have some adrenaline, you have some good feeling, but you don't know the damage it's already done. But in like a 50K, for example, Everyone knows you don't go out too hard, but you get to mile 10 and you feel like I settled in nicely. I've been running for 90 minutes, 70 minutes. still working well. I'm going to attack this climb or this person's hanging on. I'm going to push a little bit. And you know that I still feel better than I thought I was going to, or I've got a good feel on it. I'm just going to push a little bit without realizing I still have 21 miles to go. And so it's that danger zone right there. And what did I tell you about the climb up to the turnaround point? What did I tell you about that? You attacked the climb heading up to the turnaround point. Of all the races over all the last 20 years, I have the Strava crown among some very studly runners who even run shorter distances while going through that climb. And I was like feeling like the man and there was a photographer there on these epic boulder fields. And I was like feeling real studly, right? And I went up and crushed it. And I turned around to come back down and I was like, uh-oh, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> and, there, and there it was, with still 15 miles left to go. And those are the little, it takes a few ingredients or at least one ingredient to, to cause that decision. If you were out there running a 50K by yourself on flat terrain, you wouldn't get to mile 14 and decide, I'm going to crazy attack mile 15. Right. It wouldn't happen. But now you add an uphill 
which is always a little bit different to perceive to, to gauge your effort. And then you strew some boulders in there where you break your rhythm and you have to make a decision to take extra steps between something or to really stretch your leg out and attack and climb up something. And then you add a photographer and it's just a few little sprinkles of, of outside influences. And suddenly, what did you say? You were 180 heart rate up that climb. I think I hit 183 on the way up, which, which is obnoxious. Yeah. I'm stupid. But that's what happens. Then you turn around, you realize I have to do all that again. And I just lit my gas tank on fire for the last five minutes. I just burnt a match and I don't have many in my matchbook to start mm -hmm. with for a race like this. Yep. So the, so the first step, like theory is that identifying the danger point of a race, that you have to nail that section of effort. Mm -hmm. And so the shorter the race, the earlier that is, the longer the race, the more towards that second quarter of the race is the danger zone. Yeah. Do you think there's any, as far as managing effort, let's say we talk about the last two quarters of a race. If we break a race into four quarters, mm -hmm. um, is there any real risk there as much? Or is do you see most of the mistakes being made? Like who burns their third quarter the fastest and it ends up ruining their race? I guess you don't hear that very often that I know of. You have to be really fit. The more fit you are, the longer you can screw up into the race. Yeah. Because most people a half mile into a mile aren't pushing a button at the 800 meter mark, making a move. The only people that would do that are the people that are really fit, confident, and still feeling good. You know, 15 right. miles into a 50K, most people don't even have a decision point to accelerate. So you've got to be in really good shape and already be at a pretty maintainable pace to even be able to screw up that third quarter. So it's just so rare to be in a position to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, are we done talking theory? That made sense to me. Yeah, I think that's a good start for theory. Identify the danger point of your race distance, and that's where you put your focus into what can I sustain? Well, and they're very different. If you're going to a mile time trial on the track or a 5K time trial, that's a very calculated and objective sort of measure that you're going for. Whereas if you're running something longer and it's trail uh, course knowledge and studying, studying the topography makes a really big difference. I would say that's where I went wrong, where I didn't, I didn't look at a map, an elevation profile. I saw nothing. I just said, eh, I'll figure it out when I was out there. And I, and I, and it serviced me poorly. Um, so if we have the theory understood, right? Like what do you, how do you then make your decision? Like, I. I think we, what, we, what I would like to do is I would like to start like at short race distances and include Spartan racing and obstacle course racing in there and then kind of move up to the longer stuff. Um, where do you start? Well, I have a kind of a dividing line and that is half marathon. If it's under a half marathon, I gauge that first quarter to third off pace. Okay. As long as it's a terrain that I understand and have history with. Okay. If it's longer than a half marathon... It has to be based off effort or heart rate okay. because most people don't have the knowledge of a pace that you truly can absorb for a full marathon. Great marathoners, experienced marathoners can do that. See, I'm going out here and I'm going to run 617 all day long because if I go 615, it's too fast and 620 is too slow on this type of terrain. Most people don't have that knowledge. So at that point, it's effort or heart rate. So deciding, am I pacing off of pace or am I pacing off of heart rate or perceived effort? That's that next step. So starting short, it's all about pace, all about it. Well, does 
strategy based on what your competition is doing have to factor into this. Of course. In a, in a Spartan race, everybody goes out hotter than anybody should. And so then we have to have that conversation too. But you, but you will say, you will say pacing for anything under a half marathon on calculated flat terrain and heart rate, you start to get into that more when you're looking at like an hour and a half effort or more in a sense. What is that fair to say just in general? Yeah. And, and again, the, the odd man out there is obstacle course racing because I can't confidently say you can race a, a 10K or 5K obstacle course race solely off of pace, off of pace per mile or per kilometer. You have to have an absolute feel for that distance as well because there's so many variables in there. So if we take OCR out and make it its own category, that it's, it's I'm doing pace and perceived effort for anything less than a half marathon and solely perceived effort with heart rate above that. No pace involved. Okay. That makes sense. So let's start with the short stuff then. Let's let's start with that. Cause I, I assume a lot of our listeners hopefully are, you know, having time trials on the docket or jumping into road five Ks or doing some of that stuff. So we start short. Let's start with the mile. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about starting with the mile? I think you have to have an idea in your head of what you can run. You have to have an understanding of what maybe you're capable of. Yeah. I think whenever I talk to athletes that I work with, if they're going to run a mile time trial or if they found that rare mile road race or all comers track meet that you go out at the pace, you know, you can maintain Yeah, and you finish at the pace you hope you can maintain for a newcomer, for someone who doesn't have history in the mile. That's how I like it because you can't win the race that first lap, but you can lose it there. Mm-hmm. And you can always pick it up towards the end, but once that button's been pushed, you can't do anything but bleed time. Yep. And in a race that's so highly anaerobic, going out too hard is more dangerous than going out too slow because you'll bleed exponentially more time that last 200 meters than you will trying to make up time, if that makes sense. Yep. I, I believe in anything when we're talking a, a mile to 5K, really, you go out like in the, in the 5K, it would be the first mile of the 5k and in the mile it would be the first quarter mile of the mile but it's you go out in the pace that you believe that you can run that isn't like a stretch goal to start you go out and say i believe you might be flirting with the line but you go out what we'd say on pace i would call it you go out on pace and you're going to learn in the next uh, quarter or second quarter of that race if your body's up for the task or not that day and then obviously the last quarter is is all about just whatever's left in the legs and the mind. So I think, I think early on you go out on a pace that you believe is truly in you, even though maybe you're wondering if you're capable of more and your body will allow you to go quicker if you indeed are capable of more. And if you're not, uh, then you hang on. But um, that's, that's how I approach both of those races. Yeah. Yeah. Up to 5k, I believe you're right. You can't get to that quarter or one third of the way through and already be thinking, oh shoot. Right. You have to get there knowing worst case scenario, I have to accelerate my effort to hang on to this pace, but I I, I think I can. Your fitness is going to show through in the middle section of both races. You can't fake it. And sometimes your fitness won't have a chance to show through if you do go out too hot and end up ruining it before it had a chance to get off the ground. There's always a, a place for calculated risks, Right. You've time trialed 10 times and you keep running into the same situation. You're like, screw it. Today is the day and you go and do something stupid. But other than that, um, 
your fitness is going to have a chance. There's like this panic button, everybody. As soon as they click start on their stopwatch, it's like the panic button goes off and they feel like they need to make up for lost time in the first quarter of their race or time trial. And it's not the case. Your body is going to do what your body's going to do, but you're not going to find that out until you're in the meat of it. And so going out on pace is the smart thing. And, and it's really difficult because races start out fast. And if you ever watch a professional running race, they start out very fast. But all those athletes understand that you get free energy for 15 to 20 seconds. Yep. Yep. More like 10 to 12 if you're untrained, 20 to 22 seconds if you're highly trained. Just from phosphocreatin bonds, it is a free energy that does not really impact what happens next. We should explain that actually. We've talked about it briefly, but why don't you explain that so people understand that a little better? What you mean by that? In a burst start, when you're first starting an activity, you have these phosphocreatin bonds that you utilize as your energy. And you can only use them once. And once they're gone, they're gone. But they're kind of like a standalone energy system. And you push that button, and when they're gone, they're gone. But your, your effort starts when they're gone. And so you really have that first, you count it 100 meters for most people to get out fast in a race, jostle, get into position, and then you settle into the pace you're going to run. Yes. If ever, everyone would just agree to run in the position they deserve to be in, you wouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. But anyways, you have 10 to 15 seconds for most people of free energy, you can call it. And that's when you get out hard. And really high trained athletes have been shown to hold it for, I think, up to 22 seconds. Okay. Which for a high level 800 meter runner is almost 200 meters. Right. which means they're running free through like 190, 195 meters, which is wild. But the risk there is is that that energy stops being free very abruptly. Very. It's 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 gone. Picture pu pushing NAS in a car. It, sure. And, and if you go five seconds over that free energy to start with, that will kick you in the butt for the rest of the race. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a fine line. So to be safe, tell yourself I have 12 seconds. 12 mm -hmm. seconds off the line to do whatever I need to do to get into position. 15 seconds if you're in if you've been training a while cuz that 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 improves. You get to level up how much you can get out of that little system there, but it's finite and when it's gone, it's gone. And you need to be throttling down once it's gone. Okay. Well, you explained that well. You were going somewhere with your point. I interrupted just to explain that further. I don't even really remember where I was going. Well, we were talking about getting out too hot and how getting out too hot, everybody oh, yeah, yeah. pushing the panic button. So so we watch these races and we're in these races and we just think you have to get out hard and set your pace and get ahead so that you're in the race. But really, you can only do that for 15 seconds. And then you got to get right into your pace. And so if you watch, if you had a chart of people's speed, pro athletes, it would be a, an incredible acceleration. And then just, they'd just be... They t it's like they pushed the cruise control off and they took their foot off the gas and they just coast down, coast down gradually until the car hits their cruising speed they want to hit at and then they re-engage cruise control. And so it's a gentle de-throttle, but it is, there's no energy into it. So they might still be running fast 200 meters in, but they're decelerating off of it. So they're, they're not being cost any energy by that. And that is a, that is a learned skill. And the longer the race is, the less any of that is important. Go look at any world-class mile 5K and their first 200 meter split will be like 28 seconds in, in like a world-class mile. But then their second 200 meters will end up settling back into 30 seconds. Now that doesn't sound like a big difference to you. That's an eternity when you're, when you're running a, a mile race. And so at that level in the 5K, you'll see it in the first quarter mile. 
they're always out hot and then they settle in. And, and that's because we understand that's how the system works. And yet, if you watch some of the studs, Mo Farah, for example. He'll sit, man. The, the race goes off and he just jogs off the line right into the pace he plans on keeping because he knows it's long enough. It doesn't matter. He's saving every ounce of his burst until he's ready to use it. Mo Farah let, would let everybody go by and he'd just like, go ahead. I'll just latch onto the back for now and I'll catch you all in the second half. And he does it mm-hmm. every single time. It's beautiful. It is. And so it's a reminder that you can't win your race at the beginning, but you can lose it there. I really think the the only acceptable times to really gun out hard is when there is a single track bottleneck coming up and you've got to get the whole shot. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just never, ever worth it for non-elite athletes. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's all course specific type stuff that we're talking about. But yeah. OK, so so you like this is great in theory, but how does the average person choose it? I'm going to run a 5K. What do I start out at? Well, ideally, you'd run a few workouts prior or you've had a race in your past that you'd think at this type of fitness, I ran 21 minutes and I'm in comparable fitness. So you go out at 21 minute pace, which is what, 645, something like that, 645 pace. And you hold that for the first mile. And in a 5K, if you get to the first mile feeling good, you are allowed to push a button. Yep. If you get to the first mile feeling kind of crappy, probably right on pace. <laughs> you just hold on to the flame. And if you get there feeling like you are in trouble, then you're already in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and that ship has sailed. But realistically, when you get to the mile, if there's a decision to be made, you're probably running right on pace or a little slow. And if there's no decision to be made, then you just hang on for dear life. But you try to find a race or a workout in your past that tells you about what you can go at. Otherwise, you just guess. And you ask yourself the three questions that I've talked about on here. Although the one question with three answers, this pace that I'm running right now, this effort, can I keep this for the rest of the way? In the first part of the race, your answer needs to be yes. Mm -hmm. If already in that first quarter to third of a short race, your answer is I'm not sure, then you're on the high end of sustainability. And if the answer is no, then you don't belong doing it. So for the first part of your race, you want to think yes. Then it needs to shift to I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end, it's, I just hope I can. But you don't want to get to that I'm not sure place until you're a quarter of the way through minimum. And this this goes for uh, what I keep like wanting to go back to when I'm hearing you talk is like workouts, interval workouts, yes. the, whole, the whole thing. It's so applicable. Everybody wants to play hero early on and go hit their goal pace. And yes, we just did an episode about pace-based workouts and, and shooting for the stars, which is okay at times, right? We want to do that once in a while. But in general, if you have five by a mile on your schedule, what the hell are you doing trying to play hero in the first rep or two? You're going to have time. There's no rush. Um, you can work into it. That's okay. And the same really does go for racing. Mm-hmm. But but this applies, like when you think of yourself, you should have one or two quality workouts a week. Same principles we're talking about apply to workouts because that's what we're doing more often than racing is we're, we're, we're doing quality work in between. So just keep that in mind because I get a lot of interval splits sent to me on a weekly basis and I get a lot of positive splits sent to me on a weekly basis. Make it up on the backside and you're going to be just as good for it. And your fitness will always have a chance to show through, but not if you bury the hatchet too early, then your fitness doesn't necessarily have the chance. And so not ruining your opportunity by botching it early is important. It is. No. In my half marathon dividing line rule applies to what I'm about to say. If it's less than a 13 mile race, 
like 10 and under, you do interval sessions that are going to usually be longer than your race. So 5K interval sessions are probably going to be at least 5,000 meters worth of work during, oftentimes up to 8,000 meters. Yep. 10K work is going to be 10 to 12, maybe 13 or 14K worth of work. A five-mile race, you're going to do five to seven miles worth of intervals. So at that point, by the end of this workout that's longer than your race but with rest, the average pace you hold through that is a pretty good pace to start at for your first mile or first kilometer of your upcoming race. So again, the more workouts you do around the effort and duration of your goal race, the more you're not just you know reaching out in the dark for a pace. You'll know pretty well what pace and effort it took during our, uh, a workout, and you can apply that to the beginning of a race. So we're talking, I mean, we talked mile and 5K specifically, but we're really going all the way up to, in a sense, the half marathon right now with all of this descript, all of these descriptives yeah. in a sense. Half yeah. marathon the, is is kind of the, that gray zone. That's the demilitarized zone. Some people are allowed in there. Some people aren't. If If you're very fast, you can run a half marathon and do workouts longer than it. But if you're not very fast, uh, uh, a two-hour half marathon that's not run by pace anymore. That's run by heart rate. So right. it's that, that's the tipping point for me is half marathon distance. For me, it's not distance at all. It's, it's time. It's um, when you talk about gauging effort for me, I, I look at it in a fueling sense. So I think, all right, if it's anything that I understand is going to take me 90 minutes or less for me, that's my number. It's when do I need to start fueling? I need to start fueling for anything over 90 minutes. Can I run a half marathon under 90 minutes? I, yep. So then we go right into like, pace based. I like that. Initially, right? If you have to fuel, you have to heart rate. If you have to fuel, you have to heart rate. Correct. I like and that. So, yeah. So so that's as simple as I go. And that's what I tried to do this last weekend. And and I just abandoned ship there, unfortunately, with my my plan. But that's the simple line in the sand I, I draw. Okay. So let's let's wrap it up the pacing with a little bow tie there, which people are going to ask, how do I determine my pacing? So the way I would say to do it is if you don't have historical data from this distance of race, if you've not run 5Ks and you don't even have a guess at what you could run, you got to do some 5K workouts. So I would say if your race is three miles, you got to do at least four miles worth of intervals with relatively short rest, 90 seconds or under, and you take your average of all your pacing and that's the pace you go out at. So you could run four to five by mile. Let's be specific, yeah. And let's say you average average seven-minute pace for that. That, if you take out the rest and take out a rep or two, that's roughly what you should be able to average in a 5K race. So you run your first mile at seven-minute pace. Mm-hmm. That's a smart, calculated, yet, I'm gonna, that's, I don't want to say safe, but I want to say safe. Yeah. Way to decide how to approach it. It doesn't tell you what you can run. It tells you a range that what you should be able to run. And with that first 100 to 200 meter start of those, those that free energy plus people around you, coming through the mile in seven minutes should be pretty safe. Yeah. And you're going to be in the wheelhouse. You're not going to be burning matches where you don't need to burn matches early. And that, that way you still have them in, in your matchbook later, which is important. So, An effort, people would argue, why can't you just run a 5K off effort? You absolutely can the more experienced mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. But the feeling of the first 800 meters in a pack of people in a race with a starter who says, ready, set, go, releases some chemicals in your body. And yeah. those chemicals dull your ability to sense effort. Yeah. It really, really does. 
you if you had to take a guess in a race what you were running the first 400 meters and then you look down and saw your pace most likely if you're not very experienced it will not align mm -hmm. and so that's why i recommend pace base for that first mile for anyone who's not incredibly experienced well and i keep putting a bow tie on it i guess uh to just finish this off further is is conservative I mean, it's probably going to be a theme, honestly, with every single race distance. If you're really going to run your best race, uh, is conservative early and in the middle part of any distance, especially under that 90 minutes, your, your, your body's going to tell you what it's going to give you that day. And you're always going to find that out. So don't, the panic button doesn't need to be pushed. You will have your opportunity to run your best race. Your body will be presented with that opportunity. Even if you go out a little slow on accident you will make up for that time because your fitness will show through. Now, if you haven't done the work and, and, and you, you are deconditioned, well, it may, it may, might not, but if you've, if you've prepared for the task at hand, um, there's no need to panic early. That's it. That's really, it's that simple. Yeah, I agree. So when we move on from here then, so now we're talking, I could say the 90 minutes or above, you could say the half marathon or above. Fueling and heart rate zones now. Yeah. Anytime I have to fuel, if pace goes out the window. Okay. So, so where do we start with that conversation then in your mind? Well, now we, we do the same thing, which is where is my dangerous part of the race and how do I need to be pacing through this time? So let's say you're 50K or a half marathon for someone who's not running it faster than 90 minutes. This is now on perceived effort and heart rate. Mm -hmm. And this is actually harder for most people. And yet it's really easy to identify. Oh, I think it's way harder. It's way harder, but it's easier to get a number. It can be hard to identify exactly a 5K pace because you don't know how hard, if you work too hard on the, that workout or if you chose the right simulator workout. Deve determining your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold is as simple as following scripted protocol for doing it and you get a number. It's hard to stick to that number, but it's easy to determine your number of what you should be doing. Well, there's just, there's so many caveats over the 90 minute mark and the what ifs and the conditions and the, uh, like you can, you can take like what we would say in modern times, the best ultra marathon or maybe men and women, Courtney DeWalter still goes to a race once in a while and is shitting her pants in the woods 20 minutes in mm -hmm. and is like, not my day. And she, she DNFs or has to regauge effort. And so when you get to those further distances, uh, if you're well-trained and well-tapered, you're always going to feel, you should, if it's timed right, feel pretty well early. And those are where the mistakes are mm -hmm. made in the sense where you still don't know when it's going to hit. You know it will, but you don't know when or how hard. And so I think the biggest gray area, and this is why I want to talk about this all today, was because I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to break the course record at the turnaround. And I was 20 minutes short, right? So mm -hmm. clearly I was confused out there, not understanding what, what to do in that gray zone of, I'm in the first half of my race. Okay, my body's responding. It's doing what I want. I know it's not good, a bad day. It's, it's one of the good ones, as I hoped it would be, but it can go from good to bad to ugly to death march way quicker than anybody anticipated and myself included. And that's like the gauging effort where I'm like, I'm super like spring chicken curious yeah. about. And you're right. The longer the distance, the more variables and nonsense can pop up. But at its core, the numbers don't lie. Your stomach might lock up. Your GI might unlock. 
you know, yeah. you might cramp, but your heart rate is your gut, your North star. You have to adjust based off that, but let, let's use your race. For example, mm -hmm. had you stayed true to your heart rate goal for the first half of the race, that big hill wouldn't have happened the way it did because you made an on the fly decision to change the goal. What if I'm being transparent every single climb before that as well? Okay. Yeah. It, truth be told. Yeah. So, so it was, it was the, it was death by a death by 20 cuts in this case, which was 20 climbs is what it was. And, th and this is where it identifies the two real types of long distance racers. There are the machines and there are the emotional beings. What do you call me Bracken? An emotional being? Yeah, for sure. Like you, <laughs> you have the ability to feed off of the race. Yeah. A machine would be totally dispassionate. I'm staying between 158 and 164. I'll let it go up to 164 in every climb, but I got to get it down under 158 on every descent. And I'm staying here until this point, no matter what. If the group gaps me, they gap me because I am executing my race. And then there's the kind that says, here's my range. And I have the wiggle room to, if the, the, the situation changes, I am going to adapt on the fly with it. And you are absolutely an adapt on the fly kind of person. And that's why you can have boom races and why I can have bus races. Small bus can happen sometimes too. That's not a that's not a negative. It's just there are two personality types of long distance racers. Well, let's talk. Okay. Well, I had a, a, a rule for myself, and that was if I if I over revved on the climbs, which I was running a high heart rate for some reason. The humidity up there was the it was ninety seven percent. It was like my heart rate was elevated because of the density, right? Yeah. But I said, if I can get my heart rate back down to under 160 on the descent following, and I can go sit in the 150s, I'm balancing out this teeter-totter. And so I would allow myself to come down, and I kept checking on the way down every 10, 20 seconds. Like, it's responding. My heart rate's still coming down, so I know I'm not, I'm not in the middle of the fire and stuck there, right? So that was my rule. But what I want to ask you, so I was logic, I was justifying it. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? You were tinkering mid-race. Correct. But I want to ask you then, and I know this was a DNF for you, not to you know scratch a w open wound, but in Tahoe two years ago, you did what you're explaining and you said on the first lap, well, okay, you said on the first lap, I'm going to set a rev limiter. And when I hit that, I'm going to make sure I don't breach it or stay above it very long. So how did that play out for you? Well, it was depressing. And this is why it's hard to be a dispassionate racer because I had people rolling past me. I had, we were halfway up the mountain at one point, probably 45 minutes in. And there were two guys I used to coach that went past me, came up, said, Hey, hey, Bracken, how you doing? And then they moved right past me. And I know their metrics because I coached them. And I mm -hmm. know that on paper, none of them should be near me, but I had to let them go. And mm -hmm. I am a emotional racer. Most of us are. I'd like to think I'm an... I'd like to say I'm an intellectual racer, but I balance that line between being a very good tactician and taking emotional button pushes sometimes. And so I had to fight that. But then the longer that lap went on, the more I found myself strained. We had a section where we had, uh, we had a 60 or 70 pound sandbag that we had to run about 500 meters up the mountain at the steepest part. It was in the ultra loop. So it was the steepest steps you would run all day. And then at the top, you had to place it into a sled that already had a sandbag in it and then do the plate drag down and back with it and then pick your sandbag back up and go back down. I love that, by the way. It was the first time I've seen something like that and it was pretty I love, awesome. I, I love that. But I was with two, I was with three other athletes at the time 
and two of them were much smaller than me. And I thought, this is a calculated match burn here. They've been mountain goading me all day long. And this is my chance to try to get them to overwork and to get out of sight. And so mm -hmm. I burned a match there. So I left in the moment, I decided to leave my heart rate zone and burn a match tactically. Did you ever look down and check where you were at? No. Oh, you didn't want to know sort of thing. No, I didn't even wear my heart rate monitor. Uh, no, that's not true. I did. I wore it for the first lap and then I took it off. So at that point, I didn't look down because I was I was working the way I would work in a super. Just listen to that strategy, though. Even the brilliance in that simple at the drop bag halfway mark, you were going to rip your heart rate monitor off and be like, that served its purpose. Yeah. Now I'm going purely off of effort because the cards are going to fall how they're going to fall at this point. I like that. I like that. You've heard that saying. In an ultra, you've run the first half with your mind, the second half with your heart. So true, man. I found, I found that out this weekend. Yeah. In, 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 in short races, mantras and mottos and all that stuff, it's too hot of a fire to even waste CPU thinking about those things. But in long races, I think there's power in symbolic gestures. And I wanted the symbolic gesture of removing my mind and engaging my heart halfway through that race. I love that simple motto. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now it didn't. I DNF'd. So well, I, you so, got hypothermic. Right. And it, but but the point was, till that point, I had burnt and I burnt a match on another climb because I was just moving too slow. My heart rate was was not aligning with the pace I wanted it to, and I was starting to lose a lot of ground on some guys on the second big climb of that lap. We were coming towards transition, yep. and I was just starting to panic a little bit. So I burned a second match. So I burnt two matches the first lap. Outside of that, I stuck to my guns. And then the second lap, I just got to work Yeah. until I didn't, until I made a mistake, and I paid dearly for it. But that's where that nonsense comes into play, right? Up until that point, it was working. I had run down the pack ahead of me up the second climb, guys who were – you know, that first climb that you guys had where you start and go all the way up to the top and do the gauntlet, I caught two people on that climb from probably four minutes down. Oh, wow. And those are guys who mountain goaded me the first lap where they just mm -hmm. kept going past me. So it it was it was working until the nonsense came into play, which was hypothermia. <laughs> and we got this rule, folks. If you're an athlete of ours and you beat us in a race, guess what? You're not an athlete of ours anymore. Gone. We cut bait. You're out. You're on the running public training plan and you beat us. Sorry, we're kicking you off the plan. Blackballed. You are black. You are blackballed. Yes. So, but you DNF'd. So those, those people are, are, are still safe. That's the only reason I dropped out was to avoid losing a Losing an athlete. Total tangent. Do you have any athletes right now that you're worried about that if you had towed a line and don't take offense if he doesn't say your name. Um... That like, you'd be like, oh shoot. Uh, not technically an athlete, but I wrote, uh, Ian Kasky, a training plan for the Ohio ultra beast, uh -huh. more of just like, a doing a buddy, a favor type thing. Sure. But he would worry me in just about every distance right now. You're fired Ian. <laughs> He's beat me before. I think, I think uh, one race, he beat me in Illinois that Sunday race. Oh yeah. yeah that and then nice. technically beat me in Tahoe when I dropped out. Anyway, uh, long yeah. tangent. The point is yeah. we, we set these limits for ourselves. And then in race, we try to use the best info at our disposal to make a decision. But we are incredibly compromised mentally during a race, both because we are generally invested in trying to win and because we are 
actually compromised because of fatigue and fueling and hydration and things like that. So we don't always make the right decision. Well, it's a bizarre thing. Like if you, if you were to ask me 10 miles into my ultra this weekend to do calculus for you while I was on the run, I could probably have done it. You asked me to spell my name in the last five miles and I don't know if I could have, right? Because that's what happens to our, our brain. It's like, I couldn't even think. I forgot to look at my watch to fuel anymore. I missed it by 10 minutes at one point because I was, you know, gone. It was like, nobody's home yep. because that's the point you get. And so what I wanted to dissect, like the biggest, the most exciting thing here for me is, it's like the cues early on to help you know, like, let's say heart rate aside, how do you know? How do you know if, like on those days when you say, it's one of those rare days and I feel good and my body's shown up for the race, how much do you embrace that? And how much do you talk yourself down and be like, no, nah, no, nah, Kirk, you, you know better. Like, that's the thing. That's like this whole mystic being that I can't quite wrap my head around, you know? Yeah. Well, I believe your body's going to lie to you for about two hours in an ultra. Yeah. It's either going to be because you've done all these big epic runs and workouts and now you're fresh and tapered coming in. On both ends, it's going to lie to you on both ends. Yeah. You can feel terrible or great, right? You're either going to feel sluggish from the taper and a little heavier and it's going to lie to you for two hours, but then your fitness is going to kick in or you're going to feel so light and airy and you've got all the, the chemicals coursing through your veins. You're not going to feel a step of that first two hours, but then it's going to come back to you. Like the bill comes due. We talk about that. Uh, like at some point you are presented with the bill and you have to pay it. And no matter how good or bad you are feeling, you have to be able to pay the bill. Otherwise they come at you like creditors and they start your hamstring cramping and your calf cramping and your GI bad. And so the more you owe, the more it takes out of you. So that first, I, I truly believe that heart rate has to control the first half of your race, because even if you're having a great day, that shows up in speed, not in heart rate. Heart rate's affected by negative factors, altitude, humidity, dehydration, yeah. running too hard. It is not lowered down by having a great day. It no. stays the same, but your pace rises up with it. So I believe that you embrace the feeling good, but you stay within your confines until you're ready to make some business decisions decisions and start pushing. How does one know what their confines are? Like what are what are so so for for perspective, I guess for me, as I had mentioned, my confines were I'm gonna let my I'm gonna climb this climb off of feel and let mm -hmm. myself embrace it. And then just ensure that I do what I need to do in the subsequent descent or flats to get my heart rate to come back down, for example. So, the, so there was a cue there, heart rate, which we talk about. But like the non-heart rate cues are, are confusing. And not everybody's a slave to their heart rate like we are at, at times. And so like there's a whole crowd that doesn't want to know, right? Yeah. So to stick with the heart rate for now, I think there are two numbers that every long distance runner needs to know. And that is their aerobic threshold and their lactate threshold. Mm -hmm. Your aerobic threshold basically is for, what would we call it? Races six hours or less, maybe? Sure. A number that you can probably average for that whole time. Now, that might be a little bit long. You might not be able to average aerobic threshold for six hours. Not everyone can. I almost averaged my anaerobic threshold for four. <laughs> Which tells us <laughs> it might be time to retest your anaerobic threshold. I average 170 beats a minute for four hours and three minutes, which is insane to me. 
What's your anaerobic threshold? 173. 173. Which means I tempo run for four hours. Yeah. I did a threshold. I did a four hour threshold, <laughs> which can't be, that's not physiological. Possible. Those three beats make a big difference though. Yeah. And, and so what, what I do with those two numbers are in a ultra, let's say four hours or less. I'm not allowed to run slower. If, so my numbers are my aerobic threshold is 151 and my anaerobic threshold is 168. So yeah. 151 and 168. And I'm not allowed to run much slower than 151, but I'm not allowed to puncture like 166 mm-hmm. for the first half of my race. And then the governor comes off and you roll. But I think the biggest, so so you have to identify those and those are easy. You can Google that and you'll have five different aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold tests to do. And if you, if you do have a, you know, a GPS watch and you're pairing it with an external heart rate monitor and you do a good amount of flat land running hard at times, you're probably going to be within a few beats a minute of what your Garmin is suggesting your lactate threshold potentially is. So you're going to get your anaerobic threshold on your watch and give yourself a cushion either, either side of that, maybe three beats a minute, but it's not going to be much further off than that, in my opinion. So at least you have that number. You should have that number somewhat in the back of your head. Yeah. And and I just never get within two or three beats of that in an ultra. If yeah. I do, I immediately have to pump the brakes. But uh, the, the the one analogy we'll probably get out of this episode is about to happen, Kirk. So buckle up. It's a car analogy. Oh, I thought you were going somewhere else with this, Bracken. There's this. Oh, I want to hear your ears after this. <laughs> okay. There's this whole sect of the population that are like hyper mileage Uh, drivers where they try to get, they try to maximize their miles per gallon and they're obsessed with it. They overinflate their tires like crazy. They never fill up anything other than the correct type of gas in their tank. They do all their maintenance. They make sure everything's good and they feather the accelerator. They almost never brake. They almost never push down hard on the accelerator. They just drift in and out of everything to maximize the amount that they can get off the minimal amount of fuel burn. Mm-hmm. Like this whole lifestyle. And it honestly seems kind of stressful to me, but that's how you have to approach an ultra. The, I mean, all races, this is important, but the longer the race, the more important it is to feather in and out of efforts. Let's say you want to hit, you want to get up to 172 on a climb. It's important to take 30 seconds to get there rather than three seconds. The longer you take to get up, the less fuel you're burning up. And then the longer you take to coast down, the more you're getting bang for your buck off coasting down. If I exceed it, you pump those brakes and you just have to absorb that and, and get down immediately. But easing into speed rather than pushing a button hard in an ultra, I think is the name of the game. It's all about smoothing out your peaks and valleys. You can have peaks and valleys, but you don't want them to be spiky. You want them to be gradual. Mm-hmm. The feathering analogy is probably spot on, I would say, because that effort becomes, uh, the quicker the heart rate rises, the more costly that rise has costed you for sure. When I make moves that I regret, it was a bursty move. It was, I stomp my leg down into the ground and I make a burst move to pass or to do something or to break someone. But you almost always exceed the effort you should have used. But if you feather into it up, up a boulder climb or something, if you just increase it a 10th and a 10th and a 10th and a 10th, you still reach the pace you want to get to, but you don't exceed it because you have that instant feedback of each little feathering of that gas pedal. And the longer the race, the more you need it. 
you see that photographer on the trail and you get to 180 beats a minute no matter what <laughs> and you just run hard that's what you do even though photographs don't capture speed necessarily <laughs> is it worth burning a match to flex for the camera Kirk? we'll find out when the photos come out back and we'll find out when the photos come out i want to i want to hear your analogy what you, where you thought i was going no, it was uh, an inappropriate one that we talked about before the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah we're not going to use that one. So, um, well, I think like if you're sitting here, anything from like a Spartan beast distance, a half marathon for most everybody, if we're talking fueling again or 90 minutes or more, um, an ultra marathon, of course, uh, most trail races are taking people uh, longer than an hour and a half. So it's like if you're a non-heart rate person, it really comes down to just understanding your body. And the only way you're going to understand your body, and this goes back to swinging the hammer hard episode, um, is you're going to need to get there in training to understand what your body is going to do once it's what I would say, like out of your control, so to speak, because it, it very much starts to feel out of your control. I don't know how else to describe it. Like if, if a bear were chasing me in the last half an hour of that that race, I would not be doing this podcast right now because I would be dead because I had no choice. There was no choice to outrun this bear. Even with adrenaline, I don't think it would have happened, for example. So it's it's getting there in training or just scratching the surface of it in training so that you understand like, hey, if I do feather the brake and the gas for two hours and then start to work, where does how quickly does my body go and how bad does it go? Because it's going to go at some point, which I, I realized this weekend. Um, so, so what it comes down to is we're talking about the race, but it all translates to training as much or more than anything. Just like when I, I mentioned about like gauging your interval workouts. So w what I think a takeaway for me would be to go, to go play with that and be like, I still feel great two hours in, but you know, in a half an hour later, you can go from hero to zero pretty quick. So, so I just think getting in touch with that and, and giving yourself the opportunity multiple training cycles to to feel that out if you're looking to perfect it what did i leave five minutes on the table maybe that's nothing i would have won either way right but those things really add up and matter especially in tighter races so i i, I just think that the unknown of a long race is going to always be there but i do believe that i could have made more smart calculated decisions if i had put myself in that position in training maybe once or twice more in which I didn't. So um, I let my emotional being, as you say, get in the way of maybe five minutes of my race, which could have been the difference in a tight one between winning and taking second, for example. So hey, it comes down to training. That's just what I think. We're talking racing in general, but in the long stuff, that's the only way to know. That's how I feel. It is. You're absolutely right that all of this has to be proven in training first. Mm -hmm. Just like you would prepare for a 5K by hitting the paces you intend to hit, you have to prepare for a long race by hitting the depletion levels you're preparing to hit. Mm -hmm. And until you feel it, you don't know what a match burn at 80% versus 70% feels like three hours into a race or 90 minutes in what it does to you later. And th if there's a time to blow up, it's in training. There's an absolute time to blow up. I mean, Kirk, I just blew up with you on that ski hill. That kept me in check in the first third of my workout solo around that lake because I had relatively recently, very recently felt the line and crossed the line and then felt the immediate consequences. And then the long-term an hour later consequences where I started to have twingy calves. And I knew that if I do that here, I have another hour of work 
I'm really in trouble. And so that recent memory, a very visceral memory mm -hmm. saved me from myself. And those are the places you have to get in training. That's why we talk about, you know, we always have our consistent sustainable training, but you've got to have big swings because yeah. the bigger you swing, the more you learn about yourself. And the more you learn, the better you can target pace, effort, and heart rate. All three get tied together because you train all three. Well, and we talk about like, you know, the, the biggest thing that a, a smart athlete should do going into a race is wear your race gear and training to understand how you're, how it's going to wear and wear your Nathan belt while you're training. So you understand how it's going to bounce and wear and, and practice your fueling strategies and all of that. So, so you're already on race day, but the one thing like we, we don't really hone in on as much as like, what is my body going to give me after I've been on my feet for three hours? And there's a lot of people. I mean, so many people doing the Spartan ultras and, and jumping into big things. We're getting tagged in it all the time. So this has to be top of mind for a lot of people. And it's more like, what, what is my body going? Like, I know I can calculate out a 5k, no problem. I know I can, those are, those are different animals. So getting in touch with the unknown of, um, the inevitable crash after the, the beginning phases of races is that is that's just like one of those things that I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around. So it's, I think it's a very valid conversation to have. Yeah. I have two points left. I want to make, and both are brief. Yeah. The first is that a lot of people don't love heart rate training because it feels restrictive. And I, I, I agree with that. I probably use heart rate on what did I say? One third of my quality days, but I've put in big blocks of heart rate training, which allow you not to use it later on. So we talked about that last 50K I did, which I felt I nailed pretty well through 28 and then it got bad. But I mean, that's kind of to be expected off 60 miles per week and racing hard. <laughs> that's 28 miles. That's best case scenario, Bracken. Yeah. Got three miles left in a race in which the yeah. wheels fall off in a and long one. The one that cut it off was mile 18 had 440 feet of vert in it. Like that's, yeah. that does that to you <laughs> in mile 28 or running. Yeah. So I, I felt great in that and I stayed within my zones. But I had made it a point of emphasis to get really acquainted with my aerobic threshold and my lactate threshold during that buildup. So something like 12 weeks of doing two workouts per week at a certain threshold and two other runs per week monitoring it. By the time I got to race day, I was confirming heart rate by looking down rather than, than using it as a guideline. I was running going, yeah, this is what 150 feels like. Oh, I think I just dropped to 48. Look down 148. You know, 12 weeks of heart rate data gives you the ability not to need heart rate anymore. I could have not wore my heart rate monitor and raced probably exactly the same because that by that point, I knew it. So you just have to confirm it over and over in training, and then you don't need it anymore. You've graduated past that. And, and in a future block, you might bring it back for a bit, but you don't have to be just always confined by it. Mm-hmm. That was point one. You had one more point. Point two is something David, I think David Megida said. Now you might have said it. So I don't wanna I don't wanna attribute it to the wrong person, but David Megida said this a long time ago. And it I didn't know if I bought it, but the longer I go in races, the more I think there might be something to it. And his point was that if you accidentally burn a match too steep, you have to take one of your emergency gels right then. Hmm. That was me that said that. Okay. So it must've been David. I'm pretty sure it was David. That if you, let's say example on your climb, when he got to the top of that climb, he would have said, oh shoot, I'm re I'm replenishing glycogen right now. And he'd pound down a gel in water, even if he didn't need it at that moment, because that's his future proofing in his race. And I never knew if I bought that, but the longer the distance becomes, the more I think it can't possibly hurt to use that as a strategy. 
Yeah, as long as you know GI distress with extra calories in your system, yeah. So I don't have, this is one of those things I say just out of curiosity. I have no science behind it, no research. But anyone who's ever paid for a big match burn probably wouldn't have regretted having one extra, I don't know, a couple hundred calories in them afterwards. So I don't know. It's something to think about. If you ever get yourself in trouble, that might be, it might be worth a lifeline at that point. I'll tell you what, after uh, the turnaround, which ends at this lookout, the 15 and a half mile mark is this lookout over Lake Superior. So you climb up to this epic view, which was blocked by fog. So it was a waste. But uh, I burned that match. And on the way down, I popped uh, I popped four Performalite pills and three ibuprofen thinking I'm going to get ahead of this. Okay. Nope. That didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work. I was you like, took the Performalite pills. Well, I took Performalite to start. How do you like uh, the pills? Well, they're conveniently in a Ziploc bag and they, they have all the, basically they have everything except uh, the, what the God, I'm thinking, whatever makes you tingle. They have less of that. Yeah. The beta aline. So. Um, well, that's good news for me. Yeah. Yeah. His good news speaks your <laughs> butthole will be happier, but uh, I, I believe is what you're getting at, by the way. Oh yeah. And my gut too. I feel like big efforts. I can't have beta alanine in my gut for if I'm really empty in the tank. Sat perfectly. So I did, I got to the top of that climb and I was like, uh oh. And on the way down, after I got past the photographer again, of course, then I pulled out, uh, took four, yeah, seven pills between ibuprofen and thinking like, all right, this will give me a boost. No chemical you put in your body at some point, once you've taken that sort of impact, made no difference. Do some cocaine. I've never done it, so I couldn't tell you. We've been watching Narcos. I'm practically an expert. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. I, I think the last thing, and then this is a long one, and I know we're doing some babbling, and, and I don't know how objective like objective what we're telling you is today but it's just so top of mind for me and the last thing i just want to ask you more from your opinion as i'm sorting through this myself in my head is this and i think a lot of athletes deal with this scenario in a race is they go and they start running and they're like oh it's one of my day it's a good day like it's not going to be a bad day at least right you get out there and you're like okay my taper worked my body showed up i'm ready to go and they're running hard and they look down at their watch and they're like oh my heart rate's so high, but this feels so easy. Okay. That is the trap that I want mm. to just try to discuss a little bit because it doesn't always match up in training for me to get my heart rate to 180 is the most miserable inside out. I hate my life effort. And at the time on some of these climbs, when I saw 180, I thought I was within myself. So you understand the confusion because that happens yeah. to a lot of people where they look down and they're like, I don't feel like I'm trying so hard that I'm running 170 beats a minute, yet there it is. How do you address that component? Because that one, I don't know what to do with. That's the hardest one is when is when you feel good. And then I just, I firmly believe that your body's lying to you. And that's where it comes back to your heart rate won't lie, but your feelings will. So you think perceived exertion being like, I'm light on my feet. I feel great. I'm not trying that hard. That's lying to you because your heart rate data is like your center. It's your quarterback. It It's still running the show. Yeah. Whether you feel like it is at the moment or not. That's what I, that's what I believe because I never, I don't know if I've ever felt that up a climb an hour into a workout. Okay. I think it's just race atmosphere deceives you, but but I think it also, it's, it's a calculation you run, which is how far into the race am I? What are the ramifications if I guess wrong? So let's say you think you lost five minutes. Sure. So the question is, if I keep this, let's say I hold 180 on my climbs, how much time am I putting on myself compared to what I might give back? 
And what's, I, I don't know what that answer is. The answer depends on how early you are into a race. If you're in the second half of your race, well, it's worth the gamble. Early on, did you save five minutes in climbing is really the question. If you saved five minutes, then it's a wash. If you saved more than five minutes, it's a win. But if you only gained a minute or two on yourself on those climbs and gave back five, then it wasn't worth the gamble. Unless, of course, you were in a race situation and those one to two minutes broke your opponent and then it doesn't matter if you bleed out. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, it's guesswork combined with experience. And this was your first 50K. And so you made some on-the-fly decisions. And if you had to redo it next time, if you were just automatically recovered tomorrow and you went and raced it again, you would already be faster. And it just speaks to what you said, which is you have to train and practice and train and practice all these things. Yep. And that, and that applies all the way down to the, the mile or the 5k in a sense, getting comfortable and understanding your body and, and those circum specific circumstances. So, um, I just think all this was worth chatting out for a number of levels. I can't imagine I'm the only one that's, um, looking to perfect performance. Right. So, um, Gauging your effort's a tricky thing, man. It's a tricky thing. We all quickly battle it in our heads when we approach a workout or a race. It's always part of the equation, but we don't really dissect it very often as far as, you know, our race strategy all the time. So I just think it's a it's a it's an everyday topic that doesn't get everyday attention. Yeah. And it, if you're trying to win a race or do well versus competitors, all these things matter. Right. But if you're trying to run your absolute fastest, shortest amount of time on course, the only way to do that is to be accelerating in the second half of the race. Mm -hmm. It's the only way. No one limps in to their best lifetime performance. It's all done off constantly attacking all the way through, even if that means you're getting slower, but you're attacking to do it. So every decision you make in a race has to be set up towards can I attack the end of my race? And that's that's mental as much as physical because most of the time when people fall off the pace, they're making the decision to stop attacking. It's not just mm -hmm. I can't go any faster. It's all right, the race is done, the ship is sailed, I'm gonna I'm gonna jog it in. The people who are left attacking at the end are the ones who walk away happy. And maybe that's just your one overriding goal is I need to be able to attack. Yeah. Well, we talk about burning the, the matches uh, and we're speaking in a physical sense, but there's also like mental matches that you can mm -hmm. burn too. And that factors in as well. Um, any, I mean, w we've talked ourselves in circles probably enough here. Do, do you have anything you want to add? You had two points to add a while back. I think I did them both, but you brought up the last thing, I think, which is that matchbook analogy again. We have matches to burn, but we oftentimes get into a rut. Either you're newer and you don't understand it, or you're in a rut and you start thinking, it hurts so bad, my matchbook is soaked. Mm -hmm. I have matches sitting in there and I can't even light them because it just hurts so bad. I'm so tired. If you train well enough, your matchbook is waterproof. Waterproof matches can be soaked and you can still light them, but you have to be aware of that. If you didn't know you had a waterproof matchbook, you would be forgiven for thinking, I'm I'm sunk. I've got all this training and I don't get to use it. It's that decision in the second half of the race when your matches are soaked and you feel hopeless to know, nope, this is still going to light. If I just bear down and light this thing, I can still attack. And that no matter what race distance you're at, 
the only way to attack at the end is to actively force yourself to attack. And you were doing that in your 50K. You were hurting, but you kept it pushed all the way through. And it ended up not mattering because the field couldn't keep up. But there will be a race where that matters. And that's the same for everyone. If you want to walk away totally happy with your effort, you have to light your wet matches at the end of a race. Whether you're 20 minutes ahead, 20 minutes behind, it doesn't matter. You light them because you've got them. Light your wet matches. Yeah. Mm. Whether or not you're in position to win. The only way to be truly happy with your effort to have really given it all is to light every match you've got. Yep. I like that. That's a good note for me to wrap this thing up on. We got to wrap it at some point. This is our longest training Tuesday ever. What the heck? I don't even know what we taught you guys today, but somehow here we are. And I, and on our behalf, my internet's cut out like five times. I don't even know how long we've been talking. It's been like two and a half hours since we started to try to record this episode. So it's confusing. Talk about ultra nonsense. This is nonsense right now. We're doing yeah, with. this recording today has been nonsense. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you listening, folks. And um, not only have you left reviews, which I'll say thank you for one last time, you're also buying a ton of t-shirts. Racking, they're buying a ton of t-shirts. I'm a happy man. I can take Lisa out to the to the Golden Corral this weekend. Oh, that's a good date, Racking. That's a good date. She's a lucky woman. She better realize it. I'm going to I'm going to throw my jorts on and we're going to go out. <laughs> I'm going to go to Ruby Tuesday for the croutons. <laughs> we know how to treat our women. We sure do. Mm-hmm.